Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I spoke with DeFi Dad. That is his Twitter handle. And if you're one of his 150,000 Twitter followers, then you're probably very familiar with him. Uh, he asked not to use his real name just because he's concerned about security issues uh, around being in the crypto space and being um, a power user in DeFi, as he termed it. Uh, so what DeFi Dad is doing is he's on podcasts. Uh, his podcast is called The Edge. He's writing for The Defiant, and he is uh, an investor with Fourth Revolution Capital, uh, investing in startups and other uh, projects. So he's been around for a few years and is hands-on and very knowledgeable about what's going on in DeFi. But I wanted to talk to him a little bit more about his life uh, before crypto, uh, when he was a chemistry major in college. He was on the path to getting a PhD in chemistry when he decided that that wasn't really the right life for him. Uh, he took a detour and started his own food delivery business, uh, which predated like Uber Eats or DoorDash. Uh, that was a little too early as well. But then in, I think, 2016, 2017, he discovered crypto and ended up getting a job at Consensus, uh, where he worked with projects like MetaMask and Infura. Uh, we talk all about that and we talk about what it's like having kids in being involved in DeFi, uh, as you're probably aware. A lot of folks in this space are young, they're in their 20s, maybe they're not even married and, and certainly don't have kids. but. DeFi Dad said it was a superpower to have children uh, because they focus him and uh, allow him to sort of really get a sense of uh, perspective on everything that's going on. So it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you do as well. Thanks a lot. Hey, DeFi Dad, how are you doing today? Matt, hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I, uh, I, would, I would much rather be here than at there's, there's lots of crypto conferences going on right now, and it's probably why the prices have gone down like they always do during <laughs> crypto conferences. So no yeah. better place to be than, um, than talking yeah. with you and kind I of think, reflecting on everything that's going on in the space. Oh, thank you, man. And yeah, as we're recording this, I think Permissionless is going on and Token 2049, I think. And then that, that's right. Yeah. next yeah, week too. is the Masari uh, conference, right? Um, that's right. Yeah, great called? conferences. Just uh, I, I, I think it's what a popular thing to say once you've been in the space a few years that those conferences are they're 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 really fun to go to. But I, I I've definitely left quite a few of them saying, "Gosh, I, I should have gotten home sooner." And <laughs> and then also, I guess to live up to the DeFi dad brand, I I have a tough time uh, explaining to my kids why I need to go away. They get they get sad. So. Yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm going to a lot less conferences nowadays. Me too. I, I find them exhausting, to be honest. Um, and it's really hard for me to travel right now. I've got two kids myself and um, keeping them in school and, and having somebody take care of them while I'm out of town is, has just proven to be really difficult. So I, I do miss it in, in this, for the sense of, you know, just like having your finger kind of on the pulse feeling. And right. Seeing people you haven't seen for a while and keeping up with sources and, and meeting new people is, is always great. But I went to ETH Denver this year and, and that was the first conference in a while for me. And uh, man, I, I was just dragging at the end. So I think conferences are a young person's game. Yeah, uh, there's a few conferences that that I still prioritize. Uh, ETH Denver, is it's funny, that's pr 
probably number one for me. And uh-huh. I, that's only having gone to it for the first time in the past year. I just had always like, I missed it multiple years because of COVID. And then uh, ECC is such a wonderful event too. So yeah. anytime yeah. you feel like it's attracting all of the builders versus um, try to avoid more of the talking heads, like investor type conferences, they play a huge purpose in our in our space. Like it's really important that we have those to like grow the crypto community. But at this point, yeah, my my hope and goal is to kind of like I want to stretch the limits of of my own knowledge, and I want to like sit there uncomfortable uncomfortably during like a developer talk and try to understand what the <laughs> hell they're working on. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to try to make it to ETCC next year. I think I heard it's going to be in Brussels rather than Paris. Um, oh, wow. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But hey, yeah. So thank you so much for being here. Um, y- you um, have a fascinating story that I, I love because I think it's very uh, emblematic of what's possible in Web3. Um, and we'll get into that. But basically, you kind of came into this without knowing anything and just did the hard work and like put in the hours to figure things out on your own. And yeah. and here you are you know, with your own podcast now and, you know, you're writing for The Defiant and you've got, uh, you know, you're, you're investing with Fourth Revolution Capital and we'll get into all that stuff in due course. But I, I love that aspect of the, of the Web3 world and, and you're a great symbol of it um, because, you know, we were talking before we hit record and, you know, you were saying how you want to get this message across that people can do this. Like you just have to like dig into it. And uh, maybe we could start there and just like uh, also, you know, what the fuck's going on right now? It seems really quiet (laughs) and dead. And, you know, things just really seem like nothing's nothing's moving. So I I wanted to get your take on that. And um, and then we can just kind of go go from there. Yeah, so... Yeah, I think what we were talking about there earlier, this idea that if you're willing to just, you know, put in some some extra effort, you know, you've got to put in some outlier effort if you want some outlier results, which is like a whole nother conversation to go on about. A lot of people seem to not understand this nowadays. And I feel like people expect outlier results from pretty like mediocre average efforts. And and so with, with crypto, it's like, Part of what crypto and DeFi and Web3 have suffered from is there's always been this required self-learner type of mindset to do well in the space. And that has attracted a, a very particular personality type over the years. And, and that's part of the reason, like, despite all the tribalism within crypto, uh, you'll find that people are just very aligned to the core about nearly everything except for the few things that they they like to waste time arguing about. And so w- yeah, with with crypto, I think what's what's really important nowadays now that we're, you know, we're 10 plus years into Bitcoin and Ethereum is how old is Ethereum now, Matt? You would know better than than uh, me having written that book. It came out in 2015, so it's about 8 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at a place that's different from when, when I got into Ethereum, when I started learning about Ethereum and Bitcoin in 2017, I felt like I was late to the game mm-hmm. and I was trying to figure out how do I, as someone who has, I had like a physical sciences background. I, I, a long time ago, I was a chem, a chemistry uh, PhD student, ended up quitting that 
And then I just kind of did the usual, like, work in a bunch of startups in the Bay Area, throw as many things against the wall, try to figure out, like, was my skill set in marketing or sales or project management? Or I, I remember for a long time, I really wanted to be a product manager. And so I'm looking at Ethereum, having gone to a few conferences. Uh, the first one I went to in 2017 was Ethereal. And I see all of these just uh, inspiring people on stage talking about, here's what we're going to build. Here's how it's possible uh, yeah. built on Ethereum. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a developer, so I can't do anything there. This whole conference is uh, preaching that developers will like rule the world and will make whatever blockchain king uh, in the end. And so I, I started to just think about like, well, what, what skills do I have that are transferable? And I, I literally proposed myself to consensus at the time. I mean, I was looking for jobs everywhere, but in, in within about six months of uh, deep diving into crypto, I was listening to Laura Shin's uh, Unchained podcast, just uh, binge listening to everything that she put out, trying to like teach myself, you know, read white papers sit on crypto Twitter silently, just sit there and try to like soak up what people were saying and follow the conversation. I ended up, I would like to say I sold myself as a project manager to uh, consensus and I got a job and started to work with Ethereum teams. And like th that was one of the first like sort of light bulb moments that I think has carried forward to today, which is that there are, actually very few people who uh, continually push the limits of their comfort in this space. We all talk about it, how important it is to be open-minded and adopt this new technology. But if, if, you, if you were to walk around the office in 2018 in consensus, there was a shocking amount of people who had been hired who had never used MetaMask. So I started to quickly figure out like, okay, I've got a little bit of edge here just in knowing how to use MetaMask, which was a little shocking to me. But, you know, I kind of looked at others as like, they probably have skill sets that I don't have. And anyways, that carried forward then for another two years of just doing anything possible to support these like early Ethereum startups, m many of which don't exist today. Uh, but, you know, a few of them that I got to at least interact with maybe have the slightest bit of impact on were uh, MetaMask, Gitcoin, Infura. I'm probably forgetting. I remember, a few yeah, there the was, time. were you there when Ujo was um, yes. one of their oh, projects? Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Ujo, Ujo like these were exciting projects. And there was the that time. one that was trying to um, get blockchain connected to solar panels and using um, energy. Uh, on that the was uh, Grid Plus. Yeah, yeah Grid, Grid Plus, Plus wanted to... Uh, Grid Plus wanted to allow us to uh, sell and buy uh, energy like on the electric grid and and use tokens to create like an ownership and that was yeah. like more frictionless and easier to pay one another. It was uh, so early. It was way too early. <laughs> it was just way too early. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I actually then had... I think like another sort of, sort of light bulb moment in 2019, uh, beginning of 2019. So I had only been at Consensus for like six months and 
you know, it was a tumultuous time. From the time I entered consensus, the price of ETH literally just was in a spiral, like going yeah. down. And and I got to the start of yeah 2019, and there was a, a young woman who was in charge of the Ethereal conference. Um, this was this was still Amanda Cassett's uh, yeah. baby, and it was um, Jesse Grushak. Like they. They, they were still like very involved, but they had this project manager. So I, I just got lucky. This this person needed help. They were overwhelmed. I was able to volunteer the fact that I was infatuated with this conference, which if anyone's unfamiliar with Ethereal, it's kind of like a TEDx conference. It was this beautiful event that Joe Lubin and Consensus put on. And I got to say, of all the contributions that they made to the space, um, before I was there and, and after, this conference was was really good at inspiring everyone in the doldrums of the bear market. And I I got hooked by the storytelling. I I remember that Ethereal for me was when I said I have to I have to work in this space. This is intoxicating. Like I could be wrong, but I feel like this is the kind of tech that touches as many lives as possible and is likely to underpin as many use cases as possible in case I'm wrong about this use case or that. I can always like pivot and still be within the Ethereum uh, space. And uh, that, yeah, that, that was, that for me, I, I guess like now looking backwards, that's, that's probably a defining moment for me in, in my crypto journey is realizing the power of storytelling, that like storytelling was what was going to propel us in terms of adoption. It was going to bring new developers in, into the space. It was going to bring new users. And um, I started meeting in, in, during that time, working on Ethereal with some just like wonderfully talented people at, the, at that point. Uh, I started meeting early DeFi founders. Uh, like I got to interact with, you know, like a Robert Leshner or I still consider uh, Leighton, Cusack from Pull Together to have been de early DeFi. Zerion was one. Um, what would eventually be Zapper? I was interacting with those founders. And that was, that became the final bit of edge for me in my first two years of crypto that why is everyone sleeping on this? We were in this very depressed bear market. You, you can attest to this. 2018, 2019, we're like, an existential crisis. It, it really did seem very likely that the whole space was going to crumble and this was yeah. all going to go away other than maybe Bitcoin. Bitcoin had like, you know, proven itself enough that like that community was not questioning it. But I can, I can say openly, I think everyone within Ethereum was having a moment of like, Maybe we were wrong. Yeah, Maybe no, this I, is not going to work out. I remember that vividly because I had just gotten my book contract to write about the history of Ethereum. And it was like early 2019 uh, or 2018. And I'm like, wow, am I going to write an obituary, you know, here? Is it <laughs> like, what is this yeah. book going to be? Um, and so, yeah, I had, I had some serious doubts about it. And I think that was pretty prevalent uh, at the time. But, okay, we're... But fast forward to today, we're in a in a similar bear market. Right. What what's the storytelling that you're getting out there to try to keep people motivated and, and optimistic? Yeah. So 2023 has has been a more forgiving year for for all of us. I think 2022 was just so dramatic. 
because of the collapse of um, of Terra and UST originally, and then Celsius and FTX. Even if you weren't aff- affected, like if you're, I personally, I'm I'm lucky. I I just did not have money in in any of these things, and I was still affected because the whole market just collapsed. And so, 2023 is it's like it's very similar for me to 2019. You're, you're kind of just grateful to still be alive. <laughs> you're looking at what you survived and you're saying it's not that bad compared to a year ago. And then for those of us who have lived through other bear markets and, you know, to be fair, like this is only my second full bear market. So I still feel like a total newbie to the space. I'm just less new than the person who came in in 2022. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at this thinking this is nothing compared to to 2018, 2019, because there is, I'd have to check here on DeFi Llama, but there's like close to uh, 50 billion, 47 billion estimated to be locked up in just DeFi smart contracts across all the different, you know, L1s and L2s. So what's changed is there's a very sticky uh, ecosystem of products. There's users that are, are not just using... DeFi as a, as a hobby or as an alternative, you know, I'm I'm definitely one of them who, like, DeFi is my home base. Uh, my alternative is that I have to continue to use a traditional bank to off ramp to U.S. dollars so that I can you know pay my mortgage and pay other bills in my life. But there's no doubt, like, my home base is being on chain, and that's just that's radical compared to. 2018 and 2019, like you could do a few things like use Maker and those people, you know, were really playing with fire because this was like long before, you know, we had more reliable auditing of smart contracts. I mean, th- this yeah. preceded all of the hacks that well, would come been in the, in the later years. in 2016. So, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's what I mean. And it is so, yeah. so we're, we're in a place where there's not an existential crisis anymore for Ethereum and Bitcoin. I I do actually believe as, you know, despite the fact that I spend more of my time on Ethereum L2s, uh, these, some of these alternative L1s, like I don't think that these like major L1s that had huge investment and a ton of skin in the game still, I don't think Solana is going to die off here anytime soon. I don't expect an avalanche to die off. Have they taken enormous hits from from the usual sort of crypto uh, down cycle, plus the outrageous sort of like fraud and selling pressures that resulted from like fraudulent behavior? Like, yes, I think everyone I think I think back to 2022 and wonder. So when UST was collapsing, is it fair to say then that FTX was literally just selling people's collateral and just doing whatever they had to to prop up the the tokens that they had a vested interest in? You know, was Celsius doing this? Like, yes. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Like, there was hundreds of millions, if not billions, being dumped on the market by, you know, folks who were mishandling centralized exchange deposits. And... And so if that's we go what was back so to the frustrating story. was that for years people have been saying, you know, don't trust people in crypto. That's the point, you know, it's that's trustlessness. Right. And yet people are lazy and they left their stuff on FTX or they gave their their, you know, 
crypto to, to Celsius or BlockFi, not knowing what they were doing with it in the back, you know, um, in, in the back room, kind of like behind closed doors. And so, and then everything crashes and it's like, you know, I'm like, God, man, I've been telling people for years, like, you got to be in charge of your own stuff here. And and yet it right. just, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to get through to people. And I think I have been, I have been hesitant to, you know, to say to, you know, more folks, especially publicly, like, I told you so, because that, I, I, do, I do think there's like, there, there's either like a very logical karma to the way everything works. You know, if you're a terrible person to other people, they'll be terrible to you and so on. But like, I don't want to dance on their graves because there's so many ways for you to get hurt in crypto still, which is one of the things that sort of hinders us from uh, growing as rapidly as we'd like to. And yeah, um, and so it, maybe this all ties back then to this, this like overarching point of, and this is like, this is my edge that I've been like pushing since maybe, you know, let's say 2019. If you do the work of playing around with these applications and you can develop a, a an expertise around how to interact with uh, Web3 DeFi applications, how to properly self-custody your, your tokens, your assets, your NFTs, whatever they are. That is a major sort of advantage in the world that we live in. And so we're at a point where a lot of, you know, there's a lot of very um, quote-unquote smart people, credible funds and investors who got blown up. Uh, and I feel terribly for them. Like, I, I don't care whatever bad blood someone might have yeah, with them. Like, it's it's a horrible thing I would not wish upon anyone. No, and I don't want to, like, say I told you so to anybody, but it is frustrating because I think it holds it's the space back. Yeah. You know, it holds right. the space back when people aren't using the tools that are given to them from this technology to, you know, make sure that they're being prudent and safe. I mean, as we're right. recording this today, it looks like, Vitalik Buterin himself got SIM swapped, you know, so... That's right. It, That's right. You know, if it can happen to Vitalik, it can happen to anybody. So it's 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 obviously, it's dangerous. But, and, and I think I'm hoping that over time that will improve and that more kind of safety measures will be put in place. But like you're saying, when you're out there now and doing this on your own, it is a serious skill set. Uh, and I think it, it'll, it'll definitely help you uh, going forward. Um... But I'd love to kind of dive back into into your past a little bit before you got into all this um, stuff and to try to kind of understand, you know, what appealed um, to you about it. Um, so you mentioned being a chemist. Uh, you went uh, you went to the University of Chicago for uh, biological chemistry and then uh, inorganic chem at UC San Diego. Um, which is where my brother went, by the way. So, oh, I, no uh, way. Oh, that's yeah. cool. My yeah. mom would be so happy that these degrees are finally being celebrated. She has, like, my whole life been <laughs> like, one day you're going to be so grateful for these. And I'm like, Mom, I'm telling you, it's just not the way the world works anymore. <laughs> Nobody cares about it, but yeah. she will be very excited to hear this clip of a podcast. Funny thing is my brother also went to the University of Chicago, so that's interesting. Oh, no yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, that's really, oh, we got to talk afterwards about but whether. He was, he was flipped. He was undergrad at San Diego and then master's at, at University of Chicago. Oh, I um, wish I did what he did. That yeah. That's actually the better way to do it because U, U of C is a, uh, I mean, it's a, it's an amazing University, but it's a tough place to be as an undergrad. I wish yeah. I was there as a 
as a grad student instead. So what were you, um, what were you like as a kid? What drew you to chemistry and, and like, what was the plan? Like you mentioned going into yeah. a PhD program. Was it, did you always want to be a professor or what was the, what was your plan when you were going, uh, growing up? Yeah, this is, this is a really, this is a unique conversation. You, you know, as an adult, especially like ourselves with, with young kids, you think to yourself, like, what are the dots that connect to me getting here? And like, how do I like impart some sort of wisdom to my kids about, you know, making the best decisions for themselves? And, you know, I, I was a very type A kid. I mean, I was a kid who Where'd you I, mean, I was always, a, uh, I grew up in the Midwest. So I grew up near uh, Chicago in, uh, in a Northwest Indiana uh, okay. region. So I was, I was, you know, from an area that was like classic, 80s, 90s, middle class America. I, I mean, I I grew up truthfully believing that I was uh, really well off until I think when I went to college, I realized I was like, oh, wait a sec, like I'm not even just middle class. I'm probably lower middle class. Like I, I didn't realize how much money there was because where I grew up, your parents could make 50 to 60,000 US dollars and you could live like a king. You could live in a huge house. You could go on a vacation. You could have a single parent working at home. Um, we had great public schools. Like, so I, I was like, I always consider, I was very lucky timing wise to have like grown up where I did when I did. And, um, I was always, uh, very regimented with school and sports. I played, uh, baseball growing up and into college and it, it was, there's like soft skills there that have, I think, carried into, you know, today into, into crypto. Like, you know, I, I, um, I was, I was convinced that if I worked significantly harder than other people that I could get significantly better results. Um, which by the way, too, I had some Royal wake up calls with this, like going off to college and realizing like, there's lots of people that work really hard and are, yeah. we're like really smart people. But, um, I I also I, I think like the one most interesting characteristic maybe I picked up because of where I grew up was I grew up working uh, behind the counter. Uh, I won't say exactly what it is just because I don't want to dox too much personal details, but uh, I I was selling electronics. My my uh, my family had uh, at least been in business for some time. Uh, in, a, in a very small business where I got to sell electronics and I got really, really good at listening to people, dissecting and analyzing and understanding their story and their needs, and then being able to kind of regurgitate that and convince them that they should, they should listen to me and that they should buy what I was, what I was selling. And I, I swear that that skill set <clears throat> like has carried forward to you know, jobs previous to crypto and even now doing what I do, which is I feel like I'm trying to convince startups to let me invest, to let 4RC invest. I'm trying to convince investors to invest with us. I'm trying to convince listeners to get on board with DeFi and crypto and give it a try. So though that it was, it was, I mean, I was, I was very fortunate to have that, even though I, you know, I, I want to say I had a pretty humble, you know, childhood. It, mm -hmm. it feels ridiculous to say that because I, I really do feel like I, I lived like a charmed life as a kid. Just didn't, yeah. 
I had really good parents. My, I, that's, that's probably why I was very fortunate is my parents really cared a lot about us and put an intense amount of effort into us becoming good people. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's a fascinating point you bring up, like the power of listening, I think, is a lot of times um, dismissed or it's not, uh, I think it's not given the the credit that it should because I know as a reporter, it's a, it's a huge skill. You know, you really have to right. be a good listener and you have to understand what people are saying so that you can um, understand the story and be able to write it later, you know. And And by listening, I think, you know, there's a there's a power to it that uh, I think more often than not it's it's more like people are impressed by talkers you know but if you're a big talker you're probably not listening very much and then I think that kind of leads to a lack of learning because you know, that's how you le- you know you learn by listening so um, that, that's a really interesting um, point. Um, I also want to call off the irony of the fact that I'm like rambling to you and like on a podcast and like. I'm a great listener. I am a <laughs> wonderful listener. But to be fair, I, actually, yeah. before we got started here, I was saying to Matt, like, just, I'm actually, I'm so much more comfortable uh, now, uh, you know, getting to ask those questions. And like, I think like my goal, like you're doing a wonderful job of this is I wanted to ask like open-ended probing types of questions or mix, mix them all together there. And allow them to like tell their story, but like it, it is, it's almost like the opposite. Like you pointed out of like people who talk a lot, get a lot of credit and that plays out in the crypto space. And, and to be fair, like I have played into that by like creating content. This, this, we'll get into this, but this is, I've used content to like amplify my voice and to, you know, create my own credibility and to like use that credibility to like, you know, advance my myself, my career, and and ultimately, I think, to to help grow the greater space. But um, you got to know when to like step back and to be like, hey, that's a compelling story. And that's a compelling story. And like, why are people not paying attention to that? Hmm. There's the opportunity. I should be trying to use my credibility and my whatever my platform is to amplify that. Like that, that's a way to sort of like bring it all full circle and to like, you know, contribute in a very like meaningful way. Yeah. One of my pet peeves about crypto is that I think it attracts people who like to think of themselves as gurus, you know, and they're, they're going on Twitter all the time telling you how to live your life. Like here's a 50 tweet thread on, you know, what you should do. And and I'm going to take you to the promised land. And it's just like, Hey man, shut the fuck up. You know, nobody nobody asked you and it just gives it all this aura of like oil, a slick oil salesman, you know, just like, it's like this weird kind of like uh, hucksterism to it that it's like, so I I, I just try to (laughs) try to compartmentalize that and keep that um, apart from, from the other um, more interesting things that are happening in in the public spaces like Twitter. But um, I wondered... It, it sounds to me like, so if you were that into chemistry, that's really about figuring out how things work at a very fundamental right. level, at a molecular level, and and knowing how the pieces fit and, and how uh, equations and, and, and all of that stuff will work in the real world. And then it seems like DeFi is a very similar thing. Like you've really dug into the 
the mechanics of things and you were out there doing it yourself. And I wonder, has that occurred to you? Like, is that, is that itching a similar or scratching a similar itch for you? I think so. I, so, uh, part of my, my interest back in chemistry was, uh, I, one of the things I excelled at was being a, a teaching assistant. I, I like really enjoyed, I was doing probably the same thing I am with like crypto and DeFi now. I thought that chemistry was very difficult. And, and actually, I don't think I ever was like, a, like the ultimate standout student. Um, at least there are just some brilliant people that I was in school with that were going to go to like the top tier grad schools. And I, I felt like an idiot because I was like probably in the middle of the class. Uh, but I like nowadays, yeah, I think about when I write up a tutorial. So I, I've written a tutorial in the Defiant for about a, a hundred weeks now. It's probably been over a hundred, but we, we write this weekly post called DeFi Alpha. And it, it is this amazing forcing mechanism that I have to write about a new protocol every single week, you know, and I have to clearly kind of assess for uh, what is something that is worth exposing to readers that is not going to blow them up. Um, obviously, we all make mistakes at times, but I, I'm like trying to like pick things out that look relatively less risky. And as you as you dissect the protocol, yeah, it, it's like you're kind of going back to the physical sciences of like, you know, there there are moments in DeFi where one plus one is is two, and and there's no there's no question about the fact that there's like math underpinning it. I think the hard thing for me with crypto uh, and like Web three protocols is, you know, there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot to do with governance. There's a lot to do with design related to you know human behavior that is not based on math. And I think as much as I thought I was critical of the flawed designs that existed out there, I think every bear market, I just, I've had like this, this being the second time around, I've really had my lunch served to me again in realizing like, wow, like, I, I mean, I didn't fall victim to all of the um, absurdities of the last bull market, but I, I definitely am, am guilty of assuming that just more things would work than what should have worked. And that's, that's what the bear market's for, is it, it exposes the flaws within all of these, these protocols and within our space. And, and it allows us to like make the most of that. You can either you know, build upon that, those lessons or you can exit the space and quit and you know, yeah. never, never return. Yeah, I think I'm guilty of that too, in, in a sense where uh, when things are too good to be true, they usually, they are too good to be true. And I remember writing about places like BlockFi and Celsius when I was still at Bloomberg and trying to wrap my head around, like, how are they um, generating 20% interest, uh, you know, in a, in a basically zero interest rate environment uh, in the macro economy and, you know, not questioning it strongly enough. Uh, I wish I had. And I think, um, yeah, so definitely, uh, I have, I have regrets about that. Um, but, but okay. So you have this idyllic childhood. You're, you're in Northwestern Illinois or Indiana, and then head over to, to Chicago for, uh, for college. What though then, um, I know that I, I just want to get to this real quick. Cause I think it's really interesting. Um, you, you had a, a 
there was a phase there where you started a food delivery business, I think. And oh, yeah. What, um, yeah, yeah. So, That's so a take funny me one. from like, did you stop being a, a chem PhD student so that you could go deliver pizzas or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh, funny. I'll, I'll give, I won't say all the details again, just uh, to make it a little bit harder for someone to ultimately maybe like dox me in the future. Uh, by the way, too, part of the reason Matt and I were talking about this before the podcast, I just don't want to make it as easy to find, you know, like my legal name because I, I and this is my advice to anyone in the space is you really need to be on your guard. Like uh, one of the issues with crypto is that if you are self-custodying your assets, you are foregoing the protections that are afforded to you by using a, a bank or a traditional, you know, finance entity. When we use these, we we all take that for granted, uh, especially folks who, for someone like myself who grew up in like, you know, again, very like middle class family, and I wasn't worried about someone coming in and stealing all of our gold or our wealth. There there was no wealth to be protected, uh, and so I'd encourage folks like to really think adversarially, like if you have your phone number connected to Coinbase and you have a two-factor authentication and that's all it takes to, to withdraw your crypto, all someone has to do is go and SIM swap your card, which has been proven over and over again to, it's it's just seemingly yeah. impossible to prevent for, if someone tries God, hard enough. Use an authenticator app, please. Yes, use an authenticator. Yeah, yeah, Don't use, ever use, your, never phone use number, your phone number ever. Please. Or your email. Like yeah. if you can avoid, like, you know, if you can use uh, like a YubiKey um, and, and spread it across as many wallets as possible, don't like if you put everything in one place, like that gets compromised somehow. Yeah, uh, don't put all your yeah, uh, so, so what happened was what, when I was, um, so I'm, I'm growing up as like, uh, you know, I'm a pretty like, again, straight edge, straight A student. I wanted to go to a really good school. I end up at the University of Chicago. I end up. Uh, majoring in chemistry and realizing, uh, like, this is a very normal path for folks. Like, you normally don't go straight to med school, but like, I, you know, I came from like a family where I just wasn't aware of that uh, and was uh, finding out late into my junior year that I probably would need to go do something else, which, you know, uh, trying to explain that to my my mom and dad at the time was near impossible. You know, they're like, you, you either go straight to med school or you get a job or you do something. Right. So anyways, I got lucky and I figured out that I had been doing chemistry research all that time and that I was I was primed to like do a chemistry PhD. And uh, despite all the things we talked about enjoying there in chemistry, I figured out that, I mean, it, def it just wasn't for me. I was like literally in a lab mixing chemicals doing like hardcore inorganic chemistry research where, you know, eventually the whole goal is to put out novel research that is, you know, in peer reviewed journals. And it's just a very difficult life. You know, it's a, the, among the few that become professors, like those folks are fighting, you know, to, to win grants. Um, and so, yeah, anyways, I, I, I can, I can I, chime in here cause I, I was on the path to medical school myself and oh, I, yeah, I did, um, I did lab research for years and 
I think people don't understand how tedious it is if you haven't done it, you know, and how it's um, very hard. It's hard and it's repetitive. And, you know, if, if your idea is wrong, you might spend a year and a half on it until you realize it's wrong. <laughs> and, you know, so yeah, I, I was, I was in that uh, world for a little while and it, it, it does take a certain kind of person that has a really um, a long time horizon, I think, for, for what they want to be doing. Um, but Which yeah, so, probably sorry. is, no, 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 this is probably why we ended up in this space. Like I, I, I you know, I do want to, you know, be, um, you know, very forthcoming that I think uh, the crypto space is flawed for desiring too much instant gratification, but there's no surprise why there's a lot of people from the physical sciences, math, uh, uh, medicine, bio, whatever, who end up in crypto because they're like, well, I really like the idea of really complex, hard problems and systems. That's fun. Like, to, mm -hmm. you know, that, that provides, that provides the opportunity to, you know, create lots of like new and interesting things. If you can like mix and match the, all these different variables or, you know, moving parts. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I think that I, I ended up uh, leaving that program uh, right around the two year mark. I, I passed this, it's called an orals exam uh, where you, you basically present a paper to a bunch of professors. They kind of tear you apart and ask you lots of hard questions and they really want to see if you're able to like think on your feet and like be able to like handle the pressure. There, there's people literally who quit over these like really? evaluations. <laughs> there's people who like cry uncontrollably during it. And uh, funny enough, this was like, I probably was not expected to do as well in this and I did really well. It was probably a sign that I should get out and go do something else that I, I was like not fit to be in that lab. And I, uh, long story short, I started what was like an early food delivery business. This was before Uber Eats and everything took off. So, you know, by the time, by, by the time, if I fast forward to 2017, I had worked in chemistry in, in, in a lab in total for about uh, five years, I think. And then I worked in just a brutal sort of food delivery type business, one that I had started and was really fun. It had some pseudo anonymous brand to it um, without going too much into detail, but it was a really, it was fun, but it also, I think it provided a benchmark for me of like, where are my expectations in the coming years as like, I had gotten married pretty young, like we were like, uh, almost 30 years old, um, getting married. And um, my, I realized I want a job that I can either work from home, which was pretty uh, abnormal at that point uh, in time. I want something that, you know, I can set down and go to sleep at night versus this, the food delivery type business that I worked in. Um, and I think, again, Man, I you, think, uh, you cannot do that in crypto. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. I was going to say like, you can't set it down, but at least you can like, I don't know, you can at least like work from home and yeah, you got that, actually, but it never uh, stops. Maybe the takeaway from all of this, me rambling about all these different like parts of my life is, um, I think that I like to think that I'm probably one of the few people who is an angel investor and works on like a, you know, a pretty traditional fund, fourth revolution capital. 
I, I love to think that that my background is is very unique compared to others at the table. I, I think there's an issue in uh, venture capital, especially in the crypto space. Uh, there's a lot of there's just a lot of rich kids, you know, who mm. will talk about like oh, I'm self-made and I uh, yeah, crypt, crypto was uh, what made me who I am today. And and then like you dig in and you're like. Yeah, but you you started with two hundred and fifty thousand dollars coming out of college and and tossed it into whatever ETH or or Bitcoin. Like, there's just a lot of privilege that's inherited, and the 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 VC community in crypto it's a reflection of the greater sort of VC space. It's it's just very flawed. Like, there's just a lot of folks who I, I think pretend that they have some uh, expertise that would allow them to outperform the market. And, you know, the truth is, is if you look at the results of all this investing over the years, we all know that there's very few that have been able to do it. And so anyways, this this almost like begs the question, you know, should VCs exist? And I think like my my quick and dirty answer is, I don't know, but I know that DeFi opens up access to more people participating. And that's a part of the reason that I'm, that's a part of the reason that I got drawn into it eventually is I felt like my whole life, whether it's like going to a better university, uh, getting the right job, working in some sort of like um, traditional finance role, there's just a lot of gating to it. Some of it is good. Some of it is because like you, you need to be you need to be put through the ringer to become like a surgeon. Like you shouldn't be able to operate on people without that experience. But I think that more often than not, there's, there's a lot of gating that happens that prevents people from just being able to have an equal opportunity to participate. And that's, that's kind of where we are today. The state of the United States is a place where you still gotta be pretty much, you gotta be somewhat wealthy to be able to take more risk and 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 crypto has provided this crazy outlet alternative for us to take more risk and potentially earn more rewards um and that you know that's it it's the permissionlessness of crypto that is so like intoxicating yeah and i think in a nutshell like crypto like what you're saying is is the this, this question of whether vcs should exist you know the ico market kind of presents another way of raising money, right, for your startup. Um, and I think that's a fascinating development. The problem is, you know, are you selling securities? Are you selling right. something to someone that you are promising to them that will grow in value by your efforts, you know, to, to kind of um, dumb down the, the Howey test? But, and and then, of course, there's all the scammers and the fraud fraudulent people who just, right. like, run right. away with the money. But... This is a fantastic, I think, development because it it democratizes um, capital raising, right, and money raising uh, in a way that the VCs and the banks they don't want, and and yet it's flawed. It's like it's fraught with risk on the regulatory side. So it's like it's like this great potential, but then there's this great um, sort of you know risk as well. And I think for me that kind of sums up crypto uh, in a nutshell at, at this point. Um, I I think it's not 
going away or anything, but I, I do think, um, and like that idea of raising money through selling a coin or some, somehow where you connect directly with, um, people who want to use your product is, is a very powerful and, and that's not going to go away either. I think people just need rules and, and sort of know, need to know how they can use that setup and not run afoul of the SEC, for example. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, like the the simplest um, rule or framework to apply here is, I, I would love to just allow adults to do what they want with their money, as long as they're not, of course, causing any harm to someone else. You know, like mm. I don't want to see someone raise money for. Uh, actually, I, I was about to say I don't want to have somebody raise money for something that is like truly vaporware, built on like you know a house of 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 lies. But then again. No, like the question becomes who has the authority to make that judgment? And that's kind of why we're in the mess we are in the United States is that there's always someone who thinks in, in, in our case, it's often the SEC and the CFTC and other, you know, um, other like types of regulators. You shouldn't be prevented from spending your money how you want. If, if I want to go out and I want to go spend every last dollar in my portfolio on the lottery for whatever reason, I'm allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. I like, it's the most like ironic thing considering that there's all this thinking and fear, fear mongering that goes into, uh, you know, whether or not folks can spend their money on whatever crypto assets or put it into something like an initial coin offering. I, I think a few of the, uh, lessons that we've we've um, garnered over the last several years is uh, w- one of them. I'm questioning whether we should go back to initial coin offerings. That that actually was a better way forward than the last cycle. What happened was uh, this is like so. If we're talking like 2016, 2017, 2018 versus 2020, 2021, what happened in the last cycle is there were less. Uh, initial coin offerings, token offerings to the public. And what we saw instead was these very like incestuous types of rounds that would happen where the same VCs are there every single time. And like, it really didn't look as bad as what I think it turned out to be. Like, you know, there there was a time where you thought, oh, of course, like the same names are in that round and must be a somewhat credible team. And then you come to you know, the realization that a lot of the, a lot of the funds, of course, were just putting as much money as they could into as many rounds as they could, knowing that they'd have instant liquidity and be able to dump it. And, and all that has played out, despite the fact that everybody claims that they're the good guy, that they did the right thing, that, oh, we're not spraying and praying, we're not dumping, like, that's just not true. So it comes back to, you have to design uh, rules in a protocol, you need to use the programmability of something like Ethereum to prevent this sort of stuff from happening. And that's why I think some of these um, long-term vesting token models, like um, the V tokenomics model by Curve is is very popular and it's being, you know, modified and reused by lots of different protocols. That's why it makes sense because you don't have to trust that someone's not going to dump their tokens. Actually, to give credit to a team, uh, 
that launched in the in the doldrums of the bear market. There was um, Velodrum was like like the the biggest sort of like native decks to launch on Optimism. They launched two weeks after Terra. Uh, they did not do any sort of VC raise, and and believe me, I wish they had. Like I wish we could have participated in it early, but uh, they they didn't do that. And what they did is they locked up a majority, like it was like ninety percent or more of the tokens uh, to be vesting over four years. Uh, they had all of the the treasury tokens that would be owned by them for operating costs in the exact same setup, vesting over four years. So they like deeply aligned their interests with token holders. And I think as a result, despite the horrible timing of when they launched and the terrible year 2022 was, they're a protocol that is thriving because I feel like people believe they got a fair shake at it. And and they actually, uh, to continue with that, they like recently, for whatever reason, they decided to launch a new deployment, like a almost like a second L2 deployment on base. And for whatever reason, they decided to do another token with it. But it's they're very related. It's called Aerodrome. Mm-hmm. My point in all of this is they they rewarded the folks that were in Velodrome holding that token, and they gave them the same sort of four-year vesting token. So I, even for someone like myself who is intimately familiar with and involved with Velodrome, I was like, why is it such a shock that the protocol ultimately decided to, to do exactly what I said, which is like use the programmability of DeFi and to not lean upon these like, these very like traditional old world concepts of like, we're going to sign a contract with a VC and um, or, or an angel investor, whoever um, we're going to sign it with these folks. And um, we're going to just send them tokens every month ourselves. So now, now we're relying upon, you know, the accountability of that team. What if the team doesn't actually send the tokens? And so if we can get past the hurdles of uh, how difficult it is technically to like, pull this off on chain. If we can get past that and dumb all that down, the 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 permissionlessness, the trustlessness of using a DeFi protocol on something like Ethereum, I mean it, it'll prove itself in 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 um execution. You know, yeah. it's not just like a talking point anymore. You can see it because you can see in 2022 everything that failed was built on it was traditional finance entities masquerading as crypto companies, yeah. but they were really just fraudsters. They're all who centralized. Were like, yeah. yeah. They just used crypto to do whatever they wanted. They saw the frictionless nature of it. Like I, I, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't crypto that failed FTX. It was, it was just an old school sort of Ponzi. I mean, they just did whatever they wanted with the money. It's like the craziest, most tragic story that, they did oh, yeah. whatever they wanted with your deposits. So. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it goes back to traditional finance. That's like MF Global was doing the same thing. Uh, Peregrine, yeah. another, uh, it was a futures broker. They were doing the same thing, um, you know, and rightly so. A lot of those folks ended up in jail, um, you know, because it's theft. It's just straight up theft. <laughs> straight up theft, yeah, so fraud. You were you were mentioning the programmability of Ethereum, and I wanted to just touch on account abstraction and and what you think this might hold. Um, 
this is a new way of, of hosting a wallet. Uh, and uh, it, it, maybe you could just give, give us a, a real quick definition of it and then what, what you think of the potential there. Well, it's funny. I, I am probably not the best person to define it. Do you want to try to dumb it down for us first? Like I can kind of talk to like how it will be used ultimately, but sure. do you have like a good, I, and by the way too, like I, I, I literally have the ethereum.org website right in front of me. So I'm like, <laughs> I can, if you want, I can pretend and I can, I can read it off, but well, yeah, um, let me, let me try. Yeah. I think, I mean, so as opposed to, um, I think it's the wallets today are static, you know, it's, it's, right. you, you have, um, your MetaMask wallet and it's, you've got your private key and your public key and, and that's about the limits of what you can do, right? You can move things out and move things in. Um, and then, but I think here with a account abstraction wallet, it's, it's a smart contract itself, I believe. And so it has the capability to do a lot of things and do things automatically for you, such as, um, if you are in a DeFi protocol and you need to be funding that with gas, I think you can program your wallet to always make sure that there's enough gas. Uh, so, so I might be getting a little out of my depth here, but I think that's what people are speaking about uh, these days. And it's it's a relatively new uh, development, and but there is some some ones out there in the wild already. Yeah, that that's so... I know that th this is going to be like a major improvement to the user experience. So... I think he called out some of the friction points that I think about that are hopefully going to be addressed here with account abstraction is uh, when I use uh, a wallet, whether it's a hardware wallet or whether it's like connected through something like MetaMask so I can like get on a desktop computer and, and interact with that. Um, I'm just, I'm very limited, you know, like I've, I've got the ability to, uh, uh, basically send assets to and from that wallet. And I mean, that, that's, that's about That's it. really it. Yeah. Um, there's no sort of upgradability to it. And so I like there's, there's a flexibility here that's being brought about by account abstraction. And so, um, actually I can give an example here of, uh, of a product without like talking too much here than about like theory, uh, so there, there's this avocado wallet by Instadap, and they actually just released this avocado multi-sig. And so you can think of it as it's it's a wallet that can be owned uh, and controlled by multiple uh, different folks, different wallets, different entities. You know, the idea is that like if you have a DeFi protocol and you have a shared treasury, you can't trust a single person. You need multiple people. Uh, in there. And so they have been, they've been at this like bleeding edge of trying to implement network abstraction, gas abstraction, and account abstraction. And so some of the benefits of that are, uh, so if, if you use a traditional treasury type of wallet called Gnosis Safe, or just, it's just called Safe, um, what's crazy is your wallet address on the Ethereum mainnet is not the same as it is on something like Polygon or on Optimism. Even though uh, if, if you were to, if you and I were to go set up a MetaMask right now, you actually do have the same wallet address on every single EVM chain. 
Um, so it's, it, which thankfully it's like one, it's one of the few things that makes sense in the crypto UX. You're like, oh, good. My address doesn't change. Yeah. And so anyways, this has been a huge issue for Gnosis safe users and these UX issues that are getting fixed by the likes of account abstraction, network abstraction, and gas abstraction. Um, this new wallet allows us to use the same wallet address on multiple chains, which has actually been the reason for some major DeFi treasuries losing tens of millions of dollars. Like even the smartest people in our space have made this mistake and uh. wrongfully sent tokens to another chain that are uh, uh, being sent to an address that they don't control. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, part of this avocado wallet or avocado multi-sig wallet is uh, instead of having to worry about having the, the, uh, the Matic token to pay for gas on Polygon and ETH to pay on Ethereum mainnet and ETH to pay on like an optimism. Um, they've abstracted that away and you can pay for your gas in USDC, uh, which is a, a stable coin. So I think the TLDR on all of this is just that account abstraction and some of these, these other features I mentioned, the, these are helping us to take uh, the crypto experience and just make it look and feel more like the point and click experience of Web2. But the issue is that when, when you consider Web2, that simplicity comes at a cost. You put a tremendous amount of trust into other folks. And, you know, thankfully, you know, there, there, are, there are banks that like we as like users can, can trust because they're they're incentivized as a publicly traded company that's regulated by the government to, you know, to, to follow certain rules and to not steal all, all of our money. Um, but if you want to opt out, if you don't live, you're not privileged enough to live in a, in a part of the world where you can trust a bank, which a lot of people do. More people live in parts of the world where they can't trust their government, their, you know, institutions like a bank. And so... That's where like DeFi becomes incredibly powerful is it's like an exit. It's an escape from having no control over, over the, whatever wealth or assets that they're trying to build. And by, by having that security on chain with a better sort of UX because of these features, like that's, that's the key takeaway here. Yeah, I, I try to explain it to people as um, when I, I'm making that point, it's an alternative, you know, like if for the right. people who want it, here's an alternative system to having a bank or whatever, you know, you're replacing uh, with uh, the crypto and it's it's not going to. It's not going to make Wall Street go away. It's not going to make the U.S. dollar no. go away. But it, it's a it's an alternative system. If you want it, it's there. And so I think, you know, a lot of people become very adversarial about it and think that that Web3 and crypto is trying to like tear down the existing structures out there. And it's like, no, we're just actually trying to build a different one. And so, yeah, I find that, uh, you know, it usually kind of diffuses the situation if somebody's, you know, a real skeptic about crypto. It's just, hey, man, it's just an alternative. You don't have to use it if you don't want, but you should at least educate yourself about it um, before saying that it's all a Ponzi scheme, you know? So um, yeah, I, that's another I one of my I, pet peeves. I mean, I... I've been at fault for thinking for thinking that, you know, we have to eradicate the traditional system. We have to uh, completely replace it. And 
this this is I think there's some maturity you gain for every year you're in crypto. I, I can't remember like the the joke is like it's like a dog year that it's like a a whole decade um, elsewhere. There's just so much that happens, and I think over time, unless you're a, a narcissist, like you should have greater empathy for others around you. You should like be observing all the different types of thinking in the space and and how so much of it just doesn't work out. And I find myself continually coming back to just let people do what they want. As long as they're not causing any harm to anyone else, we should allow them to do what they want. And so I remember at one point, like I was whatever on, on my like soapbox of 2020, 2021, because I was early to DeFi and I felt like empowered that it was growing so quickly. Um, you know, it was like one of the few times in my life where I was like, wow, I actually was like early to, to something. And, and, uh, um, I, th- I think, I think it was probably in 2021 looking at how absurd the space was becoming with NFTs, like just blowing up and selling for absurd amounts of money. I started thinking like, I mean, my goal is not for the U S dollar to like, to go to zero. My, my goal should not be for everyone to have to adopt this. I mean, if they have to adopt it, then like, haven't I become like the monster that I like sought out to destroy? Like at the end of the day, you need to let people spend their money, do what they want with their money. Again, as long as they're not causing uh, any harm. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's probably why there's such a, I think there's a cultural divide between the entire crypto community and the rest of the world. Cause there is like a, there is a quite a bit of like, you know, um, intense sentiment within crypt, the crypto community. Cause there's a lot of money at stake, of course. And everybody kind of stands to benefit from the rising tide that lifts all boats. Um, but there's a cultural d- divide within these different tribes within crypto. And, you know, I still, I love what, Bitcoin stood for and what it still stands for, for um, a lot of people. But at some point when I kind of saw that, like, there was at least a part of the Bitcoin community that was um, praising uh, autocrats, you know, for pushing Bitcoin friendly policies, um, like that or or pushing any sort of like politician just because they're more bitcoin you know friendly like that's when i was like man like i feel like we've sort of lost our way like hmm. it's the it's the usual like story of i don't like i don't like being told what to do but if i can get away with telling you what to do then like i'm okay with that like yeah. if i get to be the one that's right then that's okay. And I, I think you have to you have to not forget why you got into this space. You have to not forget your roots. That that's that's probably the final like that's a great transferable advice. skill or lesson that I took from like and that's not growing just, up. It's just not in the yeah. Bitcoin community anymore. It's I mean, not. No. It's not. It's no. spread. It's it's why, you know, a lot of people in crypto are supporting RFK Jr., right? Because he's got a pro crypto kind of platform. But if you dig into any of his other <laughs> positions, you know, he's 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 nutty. Uh and that's, it's yeah. You know, Actually, you know what? To to be fair, uh I I'll I'll balance what I just criticized there with we have been under such 
an intense assault by like the SEC and, and other parts of the government, the crypto community, I will say I'm, I'm as close to becoming a single issue voter as possible. I mean, I, I just I feel like at this point we we have to vote in our best interest. But I, I want to say like continuing to understand and respect those shades of gray like, that's really important. Like, I don't want to just blindly be like, I'm going to vote for XYZ candidate because they're pro-Ethereum and pro-DeFi. Um, but gosh, it does feel like it, right, Matt? It's very like, it. it I mean, it, it really feels like Gary Gensler has so obviously come for the crypto space. Like, he has no interest in working with us. He's just seemingly hell-bent on like being right and proving that like everything's a scam unless yeah. he says it's not and yeah. uh no i've so I've, yeah i've been calling for well, I, I wrote an editorial a couple weeks ago saying that he should resign because it's just i mean yep. the, the losses he's taking uh in the courts thank god for the courts you thank know god. that, that yeah. can finally uh, interject some reason into this argument uh yeah, I think he, and he's just poisoned the well with crypto. I mean, why would anybody trust him anymore at this point? Um, that, so yeah, that's I, think he, I think he should step down. He He's an example too of someone who, he got very wealthy. I, I don't know all the details of this, but my understanding is he got very wealthy uh, working at a, a during an at amazing Goldman time Sachs. on, yeah. yeah, Goldman Sachs. So m right away when I started to kind of see the way he was reacting to crypto, I'm like, I mean, this is really obvious. Like, this guy is not happy that new generations are building wealth without him. He he's definitely is like, he was okay with Algorand when he was, you know, shilling it on stage at some, like, MIT event. He doesn't want the train to have left the station without him. And it's it's really, it's really been hard to watch because I feel like, short of, like, judges, like, we expect you know, these folks to act in the best interest of the public. And again, I, you can wax poetic about how many of them have failed us over the years. But this this one just feels so, so out of touch because there's such an enormous wealth creation event that's happened within crypto. And despite the PVP nature that, that happens in the space at times, um, and despite the, you know, the volatility that brings the whole space to its knees, there has been a rising tide like, that's like lifted all boats. You know, mm -hmm. if you're if you're into like the the biggest assets, even like some of the most failed alternative L1 tokens, those tokens have still done very well over the long term. You know, we're we're talking, well, I'll say like five, five plus years. That's that's like a generous time horizon. So yeah, yeah it's it's been it's been hard to watch it. And I I'm um, you know, I'm it, it's taught me to, you know be prepared to be as centrist as possible and vote for what's going to benefit the space. But also, you know, as like fathers with young families, I'm thinking a lot about how it's going to affect my kids in the future as well. Well, wow. That's a perfect segue. Cause I wanted to ask you, um, lastly here, what, how do you think being a dad and having kids has influenced you and, and shaped you in, in the DeFi space? Cause as you know, not all of it, but a lot of it is is a young person's game. You go to you know a lot right. of these uh, conferences. People are in their twenties. Um, 
don't have kids a lot of time, you know, they've got the freedom to be traveling the world and, and doing, you know, their work from wherever, but having, having a couple kids, uh, what is that? Has that ever kind of like influenced you or do you, do you, how do you oh, think? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a superpower. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, is if I were to pull, uh, you know, some, uh, 25 year old out of like the conference. And if I were to say, Hey, do you, do you think having kids would be an advantage to your career working in this space? I guarantee like, you know, they'd all say, Oh no, like they'd be a distraction. And I, you know, I need to be able to focus on my career. They keep me so well grounded. Like I think I was kind of pointing out earlier that it's very important to remember your roots in this space and to stay humble, uh, which you know, I say that and like, again, the most like outspoken loud voices tend to, tend to dominate. And yeah, like, I mean, there's, there's been days, I mean, uh, back in June, 2022, I mean, those were definitely some of the scariest moments to me, just seeing how harsh the sell-off was and wondering like, where is the bottom on this? Like, this feels like some very unnatural selling pressure, like even for the crypto space. But my kids didn't give a shit about that. Like they're just, they have no idea. In fact, we went to Disney World like months before that and had a wonderful time. And, and I think they, like they keep me motivated because I know I only have so many hours of the day that I can work, uh, you know, to, you know, to be focused enough to like execute. I, actually, I think they're almost like, they help me to really understand how much energy I have and like, what's the cost of spending that energy. And before I had kids, I would have just thrown myself in every direction. And I think caused myself a lot of havoc, whether it was like my health or whether yeah, it burnout was. Burnout would have been a real concern. Uh, yeah. Right? But with, with, with the kids, you know, the funny thing is this, I hear about all the time. I, I feel for folks. I know a lot of people have their own like mental health issues, but like, I hear about this, like, oh, I burned out. I'm taking a break. I'm doing that. It's always not, it's, it's very often, um, barring a few like good, good friends of mine too, who have, who have dealt with this, but it feels like it's always folks who I'm like, like you kind of did this to yourself, like that you're burned out. And, and I, I actually, what I'm very grateful for is I think that like my kids give me the perspective and the strength that like I cannot burn out. There's, there's no option to burn out. I can't just be like, Hey, I'm going to stop working. Like I, I gotta, at least at this point in my life, I gotta keep it up because we got bills to pay and we have a life to live. And, you know, my kids don't have time for me to check out, you know, as, as like a father. So Anyways, I, I definitely don't want to like, I, I have a lot of empathy for, um, you know, folks in the space who do have their own burnout, but maybe the takeaway on all of this is if you are thinking of having kids soon and you work in the space, like you shouldn't be afraid of that. I think that my career got exponentially better after we had kids. And I, I again, I bring it all back to like focus and like, understanding like where to prioritize my time and my energy, which I was never good at yeah. before we had kids. I, yeah, I agree with everything that you've said there. And I think the, the only thing I'd add is, you know, it also gives you 
motivation to make the future better for them. You know, totally. If if you can, you know, if you're of that mindset or optimism, that, that's right. Mm-hmm, that yeah. endless sort of uh, optimism. I, I yeah. right now, actually, today I was I was on. Um, I, I have no following on on TikTok, but I, I love to dig into TikTok with crypto because I, I want to know like what are what's this community saying? You know, it's a very different community than Twitter. And um, there's someone on there. They've got like a a big channel and a big following. This you know, he comes across really depressed, like on the mm. channel, like he's, he, you can tell he's in the doldrums of the bear market. And he kind of almost admitted that nothing works other than Bitcoin. And I was, I'm, I'm looking at it thinking, man, like, what are you talking about? There is, there's literally hundreds of millions in like 20, 30, 40, 50 plus like protocols in DeFi right now. And I'm, I'm actually not even just using DeFi now. Now I'm, um, aside from all the like, Lending, borrowing, trading, farming applications. Uh, I'm now playing a trading card game very similar to like uh, Magic the Gathering or like uh, Hearthstone or Pokemon. Uh, but what they did is they used, they allowed us as players to buy cards so that we fully own them um, as NFTs. And then you can build your own deck from these and play the game. And it has been just the most fulfilling thing because the game is spectacular. It's fun. There's been like 200,000 matches of parallel, I think, now played. And, you know, this is just like a very early example of some breakout success. Like, we'll have more of it, you know, despite people love to shit on Axie. And like, Axie was a great story early on. I know it got a little overhyped, obviously, and, and has had quite a burnout, but... Um, this is, it goes back to like, do you just want to play a video game? No problem. Do whatever you want. We're not here to tell you what to do. But if you play this game, if you play parallel and like, like I do, like I, I play, it's really fun because it feels like I'm playing like, like some like 5d chess type game. It's just, it's very strategic. It's very cerebral. I get like a lot of joy out of it. I'm playing it probably an hour to two hours a day. Like, and this this game reminds me that, hey, you can keep playing it for free and having a blast, but if you want to be ranked, you want to own these NFT cards. Or if you want to compete for uh, their reward token prime um, in tournaments in the future, you're going to like need these certain cards. So, you know, it, it's just, it's just a, uh, it's an exciting time. And, and I think going back to the kids, like kids, if you're a parent, like you have to like, you know, you have to operate under the assumption that tomorrow can be better than today. Otherwise, what's the point of living? Like, yeah. What's the point of, of having children? Like you want to build a better life for them. You want to build it for yourself. And that, that sort of optimism, man, that's like one of the, one of the greatest assets in this space is, is having like an endless amount of optimism, even when the markets look absolutely wrecked, like, like they have the last few years. Yeah. Well, that is a fantastic place to leave this, uh, DeFi dad. Thank you so much. I love ending on a note of, of optimism. Um, and thank you for sharing your story and and your insights and, and everything with me. Um, just let people know where they can find you. And how to yeah, get in touch um, if they want. First, th- thanks for having me. Really, really, uh, my pleasure to get to talk with you. This is such a d- 
different conversation in the best way um, than, than the hardcore DeFi conversations I normally have. Yeah. If if folks want to follow me, uh, best place to go is just DeFiDad.com. It's got my Twitter, YouTube channel, Fourth Revolution Capital, if you're like a founder trying to raise money. And then, um, man, the, the best place, other than, of course, subscribing to your podcast is uh, if they go to defydead.com or if you go to Linktree Edge underscore pod, um, the Edge podcast is it's it's more focused on having um, like very in the weeds conversations with DeFi founders. And so like they're almost like a tutorial. You could listen to it and have a general sense of how a protocol works. Um, but we're really we're trying to spotlight protocols that um, many of which, by the way, most of which we're not, we have no investment in. Some of, some of them on occasion we do, and we obviously disclose that. We're trying to spotlight protocols that we think are like next generation DeFi and Web3 and gaming types of protocols. And that is just so much fun. Like, I know that we're going to be wrong at times. Some of these projects are going to fail. Uh, but we, we're, we're really just, we're trying to cover what we find most interesting because, uh, Nomadic and I, who work together at Fourth Revolution Capital, we're, we're both power users. So we just, we like normally do this. We spend all of our time in these protocols, trying to figure out how it all works, trying to find patterns, trying to predict which ones will do well. And so it, it's like we would be doing this anyways, but now we get to record it as a podcast and, yeah. and, um, and it's, and it's free, obviously it's, it's there for folks to learn from. So Anyways, hope they'll check that out at the Edge uh, podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, go check it out, folks. And uh, DeFi Dad, thanks again. I really, really appreciate you coming on and had a really good time talking to you. Thanks so much, Matt. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Iams. Kareem Iams.